Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 85 of Suncast. The news came out that Solinder was going bankrupt. You know, we had Sika Sarnafil, we had Walmart involved. This was the missing piece and we were going to change the world. And then they went bankrupt. <laughs> so that kind of threw a monkey wrench in things. And we just pulled a couple all-nighters where on one side, we're telling Target not to run because I think I can get these cylinder modules, which we're selling at like four bucks a watt or something crazy. I think I could get them for like 50 cents a watt in a fire sale right now. That's exactly what wound up happening. We negotiated a deal with Solyndra for really cost-effective, we'll say, mm-hmm. equipment, You know, because nobody was really in the mood to buy Solyndra. And we stuck with it because we believed in the technology would still produce electricity. And the bank said, all right, we'll close. And we had to really sell our souls in order to get that deal done. By that Friday, we had talked both Target and Walmart into continuing forward with us. We closed the bank loan at about 4 p.m. We were all in suits because all the guys at that meeting were in my wedding. And Uh we closed the financing and then we drove up to the rehearsal dinner and got married the next day and we got through it. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle. A battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. All right. Welcome back, Solar Warriors. This is episode number 85 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I am super glad to have you back with me again this week. If you're a regular listener, honored, as always, to see you here. And in case you're joining us today because you have become a recent follower, maybe on Twitter or on LinkedIn, also stoked to have you with us. Be sure you stick around and listen to some of the other amazing interviews like Jigger Shaw, Dan Sugar, Ed Fio, Corey Vaughn, some of the other recent episodes with even young, successful entrepreneurs like Adam Gerza of Toolbase and Paul Grana of Helioscope and today's guest, Mike Silvestrini. Hey, did you check out the Tactical Tuesday back episode 81 with Josh Weiner? Tor Valenza summed it up well saying on Twitter, if you're just getting started adding solar storage, then you got to give this a listen. The Tactical Tuesdays, like that one, are designed to be short enough to ride along with you on your commute. So be sure to check them out. I also mention it because I'll be bringing Josh back next week for a full-length interview. This one is not to be missed. Somehow we managed to whittle a three-hour conversation into under an hour of edited tape. So it's jam-packed with goodies. Speaking of goodness, this episode is brought to you in partnership with SoulRates.com the fast and free online platform for providing your commercial customers with a credible lease financing proposal. If you've got commercial solar projects over $100,000 in value and you would like to see how Soul Rates can help you and your sales team quickly and easily deliver financing proposals to your customers, please head to mysuncast.com forward slash soul, S-O-L, rates, R-A-T-E-S, and click on the request an invitation button. 
This episode also brought to you by Alliant Energy, the innovative new fully ballasted solar tracker that is at home in the harshest environments, helping developers reduce project risk, increase yield, and keep their solar asset magically clean and productive. And they're still able to compete on price. To learn more about this ballasted tracker and their robotic cleaning systems, please visit alionenergy.com. That's A-L-I-O-N energy.com. And if you'd like an intro, sure, shoot me an email, nico at mysuncast.com. And as I mentioned last week, we'll be down in Mexico at the Mirec Conference. That's the Mexico International Renewable Energy Congress next week for Mirec Week. That's May 21st, 2018. If you're listening to this afterwards, sorry you missed it. But be sure to hit me up if you would like to attend the Suncast Energy Tribe gathering that's happening down there. We're calling the Tribu Solar CDMX. And if you'd like a meeting with a lion, of course, hit me up for that as well. Okay, today on Suncast, I have a chance to catch up with one of my oldest friends and colleagues and at one time customers in the industry. And if you're unfamiliar with his name or the company he started and recently sold for well into the eight figures range, then you should at least be curious to learn how he took his first company to a nearly half billion dollar valuation at one point and exited successfully. And in so doing, achieved the status of number one ranking U.S. solar company in the U.S. by Solar Power World magazine in 2016. Stick around as we dig into a variety of topics, including what contributed to becoming the largest CNI solar company in the U.S., how his young, inexperienced team pulled together some of the biggest deals in our industry at the time, the old school tactics they employed that led to a very successful business and exit, and more lessons and takeaways than I can capture here in bullet points. Hey, look, one more thing before we get into the interview. If you believe in the value of what Suncast brings to the world and would like to hear more about how you can help ensure the long-term success and growth of this podcast, would you please head over to mysuncast.com and click on the subscribe button at the very top. That'll subscribe you to the mailing list. Why am I asking you to subscribe to the mailing list? Because that's how I'm going to try to keep in touch with you a whole lot better. And because I'm launching an exciting new way for you to partner with me on this journey. I'll be explaining that to my email subscribers first. The mailing list is also how you'll know when we're planning local events and meetups you can attend, like the one that's happening next week during Mirac that you won't want to miss. And keep an eye out soon for a brief episode specifically dedicated to explaining what this upcoming launch is all about. But for now, I hope that your life is enriched with yet another tantalizing and timely episode. And to that end, I normally give a brief bio of the guest at the beginning of the actual interview, but we didn't get into it at the beginning of Mike's interview, so allow me to set the stage. Mike Silvestrini co-founded Green Skies in 2008. Then he led that company to become a leading commercial and industrial solar development firm in the U.S. with a customer base including Walmart, Sam's Club, Amazon, AT&T, Target, schools and universities, munis, several of the largest electric utilities in the USA. Mike was directly responsible for closing over half a billion in CNI project finance across three different funds, building and owning over 400 solar projects from 200 kW to 5 megawatts, and creating industry-leading O&M and asset management departments, and expanding across 23 states from California to South Carolina. I want to put a pin on that. I lived in both of those beautiful states 
coming from South Carolina and being in California, and they couldn't be more different. And it is not easy to develop across such a diverse portfolio of states. It's basically equivalent to building solar on 23 different countries. So hat tip to Green Skies for that. Another accolade is they became ranked number one by market share for commercial and industrial solar developers by Green Tech Media. And Mike, among many other things, was named 40 Under 40 for Hartford Business Journal and again by Connecticut Magazine and was Entrepreneur of the Year by Junior Achievement. He sold Green Skies in late 2017, and this is the first time he's spoken on the record about that process and what comes next. So thanks, as always, Solar Warrior, for setting aside this time in your day. I really hope you enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with entrepreneur, investor, and my friend, Mike Silvestrini. I was a traveling cook, you know, an intellectual young traveling cook really prior to Green Skies, focusing more on backpacking and just making my way to the next country, the next hostel, the next experience. So when you left Peace Corps, you kind of bummed around and just said, well, I'm going to travel. Well, what's funny is like on my way home from Peace Corps, as many people do, I left all my earthly belongings in Mali with people who needed it more than me. Get back to New York. I land in New York. I get in the cab. The very first cab driver landing in New York is this Molly, and I recognize his last name. And I just, you know, start huh. speaking to him in Bombra. And he's like, What? I need Jake. It was like amazing that, like, <laughs> only in New York can you, like, come back home from Molly. And, like, first guy you run into is a Molly. And I was really infatuated with getting back to Africa at that time. Really wanted to, you know, didn't feel like my time was over from the Peace Corps and wound up getting a job cooking for Daniel Balud and then like going back to Connecticut and kind of living at my parents' house and, you know, getting a beater car and then actually took the insurance salesman exam and quit my very first day after getting a license. That was not going to work for me. Went back into the kitchen and met my now wife and wound up going to grad school and studying Africa until I could figure out a way to connect the dots again. All of Green Skies transpired, and only now with my new business, Energia, am I finally coming back around to that love affair with the African continent. I love it. Well, let's use that as the intro. I'm not going to edit any of this out. Today <laughs> on Suncast, uh, a good buddy of mine, longtime friend in the industry, and what I consider to be one of the young industry titans who for a long time flew under the radar, Mike Silvestrini. As you just heard, he co-founded Green Skies Renewables. If you're unfamiliar with Green Skies, they became what Solar Power World dubbed, I think, the number one ranking among U.S. solar companies. And back in 2016, Mike and I had some interaction in one of my previous roles, selling a niche solar technology, as I tend to do. Mike, I've been looking forward to this, as you know, for a long time. So thanks to be on Suncast. Hey, thanks for having me, Nico. This is uh, really exciting. I've been a big fan of the podcast since you started it. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And you're a peer to me. We're the same age, but I feel in, in many ways you and what you've been able to accomplish tower above many of us in the industry. So I hope that Faithful Suncast listeners will pay attention to this episode because we're really getting a chance to dig in with an infinite learner, someone who I personally have experienced and watched really learn to lead and grow a company from a position of humility. So, you know, we talked a bit about 
some of your history. We discovered that we are compatriots as former Peace Corps volunteers, or as we call it, RPCVs. And I know that you have a passion for Africa. Surely we'll touch on that. But can you give me a sense for really probably how Green Skies came about? Because I know that was your first foray into renewables. And the way I usually tee it up is tell me about your first foray into solar power and how you decided that's where you wanted to focus the spear, if you will. It's actually kind of an interesting story because in 2007, there really wasn't much discussion about solar energy in the Northeast. It had come along a little bit in California. I would find out later that solar energy as a technology existed and was you know, beginning to thrive in Europe. But in New York, Connecticut, the tri-state area, there was very, very little solar energy activity. And I was actually in grad school at Boston University, and I was studying international relations, and there was this recurring theme going on. Bloodiest war of the Iraq conflict was 2007, I believe. Also, my little brother was in that war, so that was wow. something that was very important to our family and what was going on there was really affecting us and touching us. And meanwhile, you had oil cross over the $100 a barrel mark, which was being discussed in my classes in grad school. We were also aware that you know the United Nations group had, beyond the shadow of a doubt, proven that mankind is affecting global warming and impacting the climate. And there was all these separate but related circumstances in the ecosystem at the time that seemed to point towards solar energy technology being a really useful and logical path forward. So I was having a conversation with my brother-in-law on their front porch. He was just in high school. My father-in-law is just a lifelong entrepreneur, really great guy. And we were really close. Artie Jr., they're both named Art, Art Sr. and Art Jr. Artie Jr. actually was the first one to say, well, what do you know about solar energy? And I knew absolutely nothing, zero about solar energy. I was writing my <laughs> thesis on you know, the conflict in northern Uganda. And we started talking about it. And I think we got about halfway through a bottle of doers before we realized this is something really exciting and really fun. We had a great conversation that night, Nico. We woke up the next morning and Green Skies was birthed. And we never really stopped from that point on. So this essentially became a family business because I knew that you had started with Art Lenaris and I met Artie Sr. Yeah. back in the day, uh, yeah. but I didn't realize the connection. I think you always kept that well under wraps for good reason. <laughs> yeah, well, my brother-in-law is, is a state senator. He's not sure what he's going to run for in politics this year, but he's been politically active since he graduated from college. And meanwhile, I've been kind of at the helm of the Green Skies enterprise. and But we work really collaboratively as a family in general. We're constantly bouncing ideas and we really are a board within a board is how we kind of look at our relationship together. Let me give you like a, an example of how extreme the switch was that night we discussed solar. Up until that point, I had been studying Africa and really focused on getting into the international development sphere. And that night, everything changed, and I became exclusively focused on solar to the extent that I scrapped my paper on northern Uganda and instead wrote a paper about the tax policies that were guiding solar energy in the United States, which has literally nothing to do with my master's degree. But I just refused to focus on anything other than solar from that day forth. They did eventually give me a master's degree in international relations for writing a paper on solar tax credits. I'm thankful for Boston University for that. But more importantly, I was just hell-bent on taking Green Skies forward, and everything was different from then on, and we started the solar company. 
I'm infatuated with the principles and foundations of startups and the hard knocks that many entrepreneurs endure to grow their companies. But also early on in your career, there are things you adapt from previous experiences. What would you say from your previous experience, your world travels, your time in Mali as a Peace Corps volunteer, even your time as a chef helped inform your leadership and entrepreneur style? Well, there's no doubt that of the things you just listed, the most influential part of my track record that affected my ability to start a business was working in the professional kitchen. The accolades of you know, the Peace Corps and the educational and academic stuff really didn't have a great ton of influence except for reading and writing, which comes from you know, a tremendous amount of practice in grad school. But the bigger, more influential part of my life was being a chef and working long hours and you know, really grinding it out and then hiring people and training people and getting them to work as a team. Those skills, especially working under a chef, his name is Mickey Josephs, a huge influence of mine, taught me a lot about cooking, but taught me a lot more about getting things done, working hard, that work effort that is so important to being successful in life. And I brought that stuff to Green Skies every single day and hardly ever came across another pro kitchen you know, person you know, when interviewing and hiring. And I've hired many people and it's really rare that I see somebody with that professional kitchen experience, but I sure give them a double look if I know that they have that work effort ingrained into them, which only the professional kitchen can do. When you founded Green Skies, you were a rarity in the Northeast, and many tried to compare you to Solar City because you guys went after the big box stores like Target as anchors. I'd love to understand how you, as the CEO and, and the founding team, Andrew Chester, one of your first sales guys who just crushed it, what it looked like in the meeting room, in the boardroom, when you started thinking about the strategy to differentiate yourselves from the Mercury Solars and others in the Northeast who the standard solars, et cetera, who had been around for a long time. What was your approach to being differentiated? And what do you think ultimately contributed to the success of, as I mentioned before, becoming the number one ranking among US solar companies? Yeah, it's a good question. And first is to understand sort of the environment at Green Skies at that time period. There was five partners, certainly not just me. This was very much a group effort. We had a lot of people with unique skills. I may have been sort of the grit or the heart and soul of it, but there was so much talent coming from my other four partners to really make it possible because the entrepreneur alone is not really a recipe for success. It's really when you bring in sort of the people who are thinking clearly and are experienced that an entrepreneurial vision can start become possible. But in this case, we had partners like Art Senior and Bob Landino, who had a lot of real estate experience, specifically commercial real estate experience. So they definitely influenced the business to look at commercial opportunities. And Andrew, who was really fresh out of college and did become, in my opinion, the best salesman in CNI Solar in the history of the game, he was really learning from Bob and Art at that time. And we really bought into the idea that home solar was not interesting to us. It was crawling through the attic and tripping over the Christmas ornaments to get to the inverters. It's just not something that we wanted to participate in. It seemed like it was too small of a singular transaction. We liked the metrics of CNI solar much more. We also knew that we were not big enough to, and this is really early stages of utility scale, but that was certainly happening. 
And even in those days, it was a bigger market share than CNI Solar for sure. But that wasn't a space that we wanted to engage either. We felt the porge was the right temperature right down the middle and stuck with CNI Solar in those days and really never ventured either towards utility scale or residential since and really felt comfortable in the business to business realm. A lot of folks that listen to the show, they just don't have perspective unless they're in the weeds about, or they have a false perspective about what is easy about starting a company or what's hard. And in my view, actually choosing where you spend your time is the hard part. I agree. You know, we were like chasing after anything, really. The reality here, Nico, is that we got really lucky a couple of times and we stuck with it. Number one, we were trying to get Smith & Wesson, the gun manufacturer in Massachusetts, because Connecticut had run out of dollars for solar energy. It was $5 a watt rebate. So think about that. There was the, the 1603 grant was in place and a $5 a watt. Was this before Z-Rex? This is before Rex. I mean, this was really when grants were the framework for all the Northeastern okay. states. New Jersey may have just started Rex, but it was early because we got to New Jersey in time to get, you know, $400 10-year SREC contracts and you know, those super early days. And at the time we were in Connecticut, so we were focused on this rebate program. By the time we got our first deal, it had you know, run out of money. So we ran up to Massachusetts and this sort of group of people that I was working with all thought I was nuts mm-hmm. for like leaving Connecticut, you know, this comfortable market. But it was so obvious that we had to go and chase where the deals were. At the time, Massachusetts Technology Commission, I believe, MTC, was the administrative body distributing grants for solar projects. And we were trying to get one of those grants for a Smith & Wesson deal, a 500 kilowatt project. And it's also hard to imagine how unthinkable a 500 kilowatt project right. was in, in those days. The largest system in the Northeast was 500 kilowatts in Massachusetts somewhere. And we were you know, shooting for that kind of caliber project. When we showed up for Smith & Wesson, there was like you know, three of these volunteers, more or less, that had been helping me at the time, early believers in the Green Skies idea. We all showed up at Smith & Wesson at the same time, and Andrew decided, you know what, I'm going to go start banging doors across the street while you guys take this meeting. When he did that, he went across the street to this little company called Astro Chemicals, and they were the ones that actually gave us our first shot at building solar for them. Get out of town. Yeah. You're right, man. I got to get Andrew on the show because he is one of those guys that's just, I feel like the Suncast audience would get a much deeper understanding of what it's like to be a focused solar salesperson. No doubt. He's a dyed-in-the-wool dealmaker. I don't think he views himself as a salesperson so much as just a relationship builder, a service provider. You know, he's helping customers meet their objectives, and we think we have a product that does that. It was a PPA. It was 97 kilowatts, which at the time was pretty exciting. And then that same week, we got a project secured with Sika Sarnafil, a roofing manufacturer in Massachusetts. I was going to bring that deal up, actually. Yeah, remember that one? Because that's when I was talking to you. The idea was to take Sika's roof membrane and divide the roof into four segments and do cylindra, crystalline, you know, maybe yeah. some peel and stick, you know, the various technologies, because no one knew the winner in those days. That's so right. we were pretty bullish on cylindra, but you know, we all know how that one ended. 
you know, this is 2009, 2010. You guys not only were landing big contracts like Sikasarnafil, which gave you an inroad to the big roofing contractors, uh, maybe, and you might mention some of the partners that you guys partnered with, like Siltown, that really did a lot of work that nobody knew about, right? Like you guys went about approaching and penetrating the market. There was a little bit of like fortuitousness. I'm going to go across the street and knock doors, but there was a lot of strategy that others hadn't really internalized, like partnering with Asika, which really opened a lot of doors for you. And you were risk takers at a technology level. No doubt. I mean, people weren't sure. Like right now, in retrospect, it seems obvious what the solution is. Mm. But in those days, we didn't know if it was thin film, if it was crystalline. It was all really expensive. And we were all relying on grants. And there was no, I mean, there was almost no chance that this was going to work. If I had known anything about (laughs) business in 2008, I probably would have done something else altogether. But uh, I didn't have enough business chops to talk myself out of it. And we just kept going. And then at the time, because grants were governing the projects, everybody was building sort of 50 kilowatt projects, if that's what the grant was, or 35 kilowatt projects. So everything was kind of, you know, you had this massive roof space and then people were installing like, you know, 30 kilowatts on this like megawatt size roof. Right. And it was really, I have to give Andrew a huge amount of the credit here because I remember the meeting. We were down in my father-in-law's basement. It's where our headquarters was. He pulled up a, a rooftop in Massachusetts and I was looking at it, just drooling, you know, one of these big, sexy solar roofs. And I said, so what are we going to throw on this roof? He goes, let's blanket it. And, you know, it doesn't seem really that crazy of a thought, but in those days, like the idea of just covering the roof and solar panels was not something that was being done. And that's how he wanted to approach it. My role was really figuring out how to do that and mm-hmm. helping him achieve that. And we worked really well in tandem. It's kind of a CEO's dream, right? You got somebody on your team who's willing to say, let's go do this. Now help me figure out how to resource it. Exactly. Exactly. I'll build the product. I'll find the money. You just go talk to customer into letting us try. You know, he did exactly that. And you know, we got that astrochemicals deal and that Sika Sarnafil deal. And I remember they were about seven bucks a watt or something, maybe over. Mm-hmm. They were about right. seven fifty a watt to install those projects. We needed cash and they were power purchase agreements. Craig Klein over at Troutman Sanders was nice enough to really help us design the first contracts, even though we had no money and helped us really put forth a solid product for those guys, which we executed. And now I needed to get some money. And I went to a well-known local business guy named Bob Landino and asked him for help. And he had a construction company that was building commercial real estate. And he had also been a very successful man. And he helped us fund those first projects. And I promised him if he stroked the check for these first two deals, I would go get these grants and I would find a way to pay him back. And in 12 months, he'd have his money back. And we lived up to that promise. He became a partner in exchange for that. And the rest is history. Shortly after getting those two operational projects, we could say we've executed power purchase agreements in the Northeast, which is something that very few people could claim. Andrew was just adamant about getting Target. And a lot of people think that because we were working with Bob Landino or because we had a deal with Sika Sarnafil, that we had some sort of privileged treatment with Walmart and with Target. And that's absolutely not the case. We gave Walmart 28 or 30 proposals. We just kept on delivering them new (laughs) ways of considering this product and uh, kept calling and we were the squeaky wheel. And eventually we got both of those customers in the same month of January 2011. 
Yeah, I remember in 2010, a good buddy of mine, friend of yours as well, Mike Casterline over at Solar City, was pretty much the only guy that Mac at Wall. I mean, I mean, the insider trading, like the guy that made decisions at Walmart <laughs> at the time was a guy. Mackie boy. And nobody yeah. could get into Mac's door. Like it was impossible. I had been trying for two years. Mike Casterline made an intro for me and I was in conversations with Mac. And I remember sitting in a meeting with Andrew Chester and he was like, oh, are you talking to Mac? And I was like, double take, like, how do you know Mac? This is, <laughs> this is one of those names that like is the name that shall not be uttered unless you are actually in a conversation with him about a real project. Andrew's like, oh, I had dinner with him. Uh, well, I didn't really have dinner with him because as you know, we can't have dinner with him. But, <laughs> like, but, right. but I might have been hanging out with him last week. That was the moment where like Andrew went from recent college grad BD guy to like this upper echelon in my mind of like, holy smokes, this kid knows what he's doing. And then, as you know, we at Lametta had done the Musical Instrument Museum down in Arizona, which was basically funded by the Target Foundation. And we got that contract because we were working directly with Target on three stores in, in Hawaii. And, and again, when Andrew came back around and started dropping the names of the folks he was talking with at Target, you know, as a sales guy, and this is a, advice I try to give folks, it's advice that I'm executing now for my clients. A lot of folks think, you know, in being the number of targets, right, that you as a sales guy, you're looking at like N equals 20, N equals 50, N equals 100, like the people prospects, when really it should be more like N equals five. And I went back to the Lometa team and said in the Northeast, N equals one, and it's named Greens Guys. <laughs> and nice. One of the things that really stood out to me was that you guys were willing to take technology risk. I mentioned before you were, I think yeah, for sure you, the, you were the largest buyer of Solyndra in the Northeast, probably one of the largest buyers in the US. Is that easy to say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And you convinced Target to take technology risk with Solyndra, correct? As the story goes, it's a little bit even more extreme than that because when we landed those deals with Walmart and with Target, Walmart wanted a power purchase agreement and Target did cash deals. They were buying the installations, which was a great combination for us because we had the cash flow and the opportunity to start financing, project financing. As the story goes, there was a hurricane. Hurricane Sandy came and wiped out like Southern Connecticut this one particular week in September. We were trying to really get this deal going to close on a piece of financing to fund the four pilot Walmart projects in New Jersey. It just so happened that I was getting married that Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we have no power in the office space. So we're trying to scramble together to close on a piece of financing. And by the time the power came back on, it was a Wednesday, the news came out that Cylinder was going bankrupt. So I just yeah. spent you know six months explaining to the bank why they should be as excited as I am about this new technology off of white roofs. Yeah, you know, we had Sika Sarnafil, we had Walmart involved. This was the thing, the missing piece, and we were going to you know, change the world. And then they went bankrupt. <laughs> so that kind of threw a monkey wrench in things. And we just pulled a couple all-nighters where on one side, we're telling Target not to run because what we should do is take this as an opportunity. I think I can get these cylinder modules, which we're selling at like four bucks yeah. a lot or something crazy. I think I could get them for like 50 cents a lot in a fire sale right now because they're burning down like Rome. That's exactly what wound up happening. We negotiated a deal with Solyndra for really cost-effective, we'll say, equipment, mm -hmm. you know, because nobody was really in the mood to buy Solyndra that Wednesday. And we stuck with it because we believed in the technology would still produce electricity. You know, the warranty was never really worth anything to us. Right. And the bank said, all right, we'll close. You know, we have to, everything was personally guaranteed. 
and we had to really sell our souls in order to get that deal done. By that Friday, we had talked both Target and Walmart into continuing forward with us and the bank. We closed the bank loan at about 4 p.m. We were all in suits because all the guys at that meeting were in my wedding. And <laughs> we closed the financing and then we drove up to the rehearsal dinner and got married the next day and we got through it. Uh, somewhere along the way, so my wife is Cuban, and my attorney at the time is telling me, well, Mike, did you get a goat? Because the tradition is if you marry a Cuban girl, you're supposed to give the father of a bride a goat. It's an old tradition. It'd be really cool if you kept with that. And I was like, no, I, obviously I don't have a goat. I'm trying to close on this deal with Solyndra. I'm trying to close on a deal with this bank. I'm trying to you know, talk uh, Target and Walmart from you know, from ditching this whole idea. No, but it turns out like one of my good friends from the old neighborhood is a farmer and he's the kind of guy who could get his hands on a goat if you need one in short order. So <laughs> by, the, by the end of it, you know, we close on this deal the next morning. You know, I'm standing there ready to get married. Uh, we have financing for Solyndra, a bankrupt company to throw up panels on Walmart. We were going to do these installations for Target. And up on top of the hill is the goat as an offering to my father-in-law. And I pulled it off. And uh, after we get married, I'm walking down the aisle with my wife and my attorney steps into the aisle. He goes, Mike, we made up that whole thing about the goat. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a wild trip. Would you say there's something that you originally kind of starting out as a startup as you said, naive about what to expect that you thought would be easy that turned out to be hard? Yeah, I thought that if we had projects with customers like, you know, Walmart and the other great credits, you know, schools and universities that brought in attractive returns with tested technology, you know, not even the Solyndra stuff, but the real technology, I thought that it would be easier to raise capital for those types of projects. And I always told the guys that just keep bringing in deals. You know, let me figure out where the money is going to come from. And I found myself, you know, with my back against the wall at all times because we were always either really heavy in projects and, you know, I needed to find $100 million yesterday to keep my customer relationships intact. Or we were really heavy in money having just closed on a fund and now I need projects like there's no tomorrow. And there was never really the equilibrium that we really uh, wanted to establish, it never got there all throughout my tenure at Green Skies. It was always too much of one and not enough of the other. I'm surprised at that because you know, you'd think after building a few hundred of these things and having the credit off takers and really establishing that we know what we're doing, we were vertically integrated from O&M and the EPC and everything we ran in-house except for like subcontracted electrical labor. You know, that wasn't always enough because the reality of the financing world is that there are so many other characteristics that make a deal work or not work mm. from, you know, the macro economy, you know, what's going on in tax rates. And, you know, that's one that I know people in the U.S. markets are feeling a lot right now is how the macro economy can trump, <laughs> poor <laughs> use of the word, but can trump the dynamics of a project. So yeah. that was hard to, to get used to. Did you guys develop your, all your own portfolio or did you at some point engage in M&A? We never did a single M&A transaction. It was really, in many ways, there was sort of a two-man operation here between Andrew getting the deals and me figuring out how to finance them and also continuing to build infrastructure to support the needs of those projects. That's how the business really ran for at least the first six to seven years. 
towards uh, the later half of my tenure as CEO, you know, we started having a more robust capabilities in our management and from engineering and the guys doing the coding of our all-important HANA computer system, which tied the whole business together. Then all those pieces really started to work in harmony only towards the end. But it was, it was kind of the effort of the founding partners for much of the, the first half of the journey. I'm curious to understand if there were things you saw going right and then things that you saw going wrong and how you as the CEO steered your team in the right direction. And more importantly, like what about those things would you caution against to other developers now? That's an easy one, Nico, because we pretty much saw the same mistake repeated over and over again. And as we all know, the CNI solar field is littered with dead bodies and most of them died the same way. And mm. that was to overestimate the addressable market, the attainable market, and to grow obese in terms of their machinery and their overhead too quickly and overestimate the deal flow and wind up strangling themselves with capital. The net result of that scenario is that companies like Sun Edison and Solar City were constantly bidding unrealistic pricing. Because they had to feed the machine. Yeah, they had to feed the machine, even though their machine was so big that they, these deals were not making any profit for them. I know they weren't because we were installing way cheaper than they were, and mm -hmm. primarily because of the leanness of our architecture, yet we were losing in some cases. And it made no sense to me. I knew that that was not a sustainable bidding behavior from my opponents. And we had, at the same time, you know, going back to days like Tioga, if I don't remember uh -huh. those guys, sure, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and Solar Power Partners, there was a lot of people who fell victim to their own ability to raise capital. And you know, we were just really committed to not doing that. And, you know, part of it is also, quite frankly, we didn't have the business chops to raise you know, a private equity or venture capital fund. And you know, I didn't know what venture capital was. So it really wasn't <laughs> a risk for us to be overladen <laughs> with investment. But the net result was we really stayed true to doing deals profitably. And mm -hmm. we kept lean enough so that if the market got crazy, which it did, and meant that our profitable projects were few and far between because we were getting beaten by unrealistic pricing, then so be it. Stay the course is what we always said. Mm -hmm. Stay the course, stick with what's working, be profitable, and eventually those guys will go the way of the dodo and will win. And in many ways, like I'm really proud to feel at least that that's in a lot of ways what played out. I remember at Solar Power 2008, meeting Peter Rive and I asked him and he was actually on the trade show floor at Solar City and probably their only time had a booth at SPI and I said Peter look you guys have rolled up a few uh, electrical companies all over the state of California help me understand this strategy and how you even manage it from Foster City like what's going on there and he just looked at me and he said we're going to win this game through better operating systems you know and he said I know everything about everything. They basically built a software system in the background that ran Solar City and allowed them to manage a thousand installers at a time when most companies at best had a hundred. And you mentioned something that reminded me of that conversation with Peter. You mentioned this uh, computer system. I think you called it HANA. Can you tell me more about that and how building this architecture helped you scale? So on this one, Nico, I have to be sensitive to the fact that I ultimately sold Green Skies and the HANA and all of its capabilities are now someone else's best kept secret. Keeping that in mind, what I can say here is that there are some you know, fabulous technologies out there that are completely customizable. 
so that we were able to, as a group of professionals, sort of download our brains into this common architecture that reached across from the origination of the deal, through the financing of the deal, through the EPC of the deal, all the way through asset management. And we were able to connect as a group and collaborate as a group and to really know where the money was and what was functioning and what's out of order. We can really see all that through this platform. Basically, it's the greatest hits of the people who worked at Green Skies all summed up into one platform. Who made that call? Is that something that you were just geeking out about? Me. Yeah, yeah. I, I held an RFP with the guys I just mentioned. And SAP HANA was the clear and obvious winner. And yeah, we spent a few million dollars on basically going through the systems and operations of the business and implanting them into interfaces that every individual would work off of their own interface. If you were an engineer, you were sending the project through the engineering cycle in the HANA. If you were a sales guy, you know, your sales technology was in the HANA. If you were accounting, your ERP system was tied into the HANA. So it was just a common ground that we were able to all work with. Mike, you know, it's one of the things that early on I really identified about you guys is that you really thought systematically. I think that comes a lot from the Bob Landino and the influence of the construction industry early, early on, on your thought process as a young CEO. Uh, And I might be wrong about this, but your ability to think with a process orientation not only comes from kind of your logistics thought process from the kitchen, but some of the senior influences on your board that were instructing you about how the construction industry works. And a lot of the things I see as failures of development companies is they far too late in the cycle start thinking about how to institutionalize the development process for their team. And therefore, they've got five, six, seven different processes running at any given time, depending on the personality and charisma of an individual actor. And it also means that there's internal competing against resources as as opposed to sharing of resources across a common waveform, if you will, a thought process of how we get things done. And the thing that, as I've reflect back over the time I worked with you, really impressed me about Green Skies is it was a team that truly rode together. I rarely saw that you guys had conflicting internal views or construct or process. And it seemed very, yeah, I'll just say very organized. Well, I think a lot of that is the the way my mind works. And it's really useful as an entrepreneur to really be um, architectural is the word I use. I'm I'm always thinking about the processes and how it works. It doesn't make sense to me until I can really map it out and see end to end its functionality. And my partners, to their credit, gave me complete carte blanche on designing the architecture and operations of the business. And they were really supportive and hardly ever confrontational. You know, there was a time early on, for example, there was a company called Deck Monitoring, yep. and I had a really good relationship with Deck. And some of the original founders were thinking about stepping out. And I said, you know what? Maybe we could do an MA type of transaction right here. They actually put the kibosh on that, and they were right to do so. So they were simultaneously, you know, tailoring this entrepreneur into mm-hmm. focusing on what we was most important for the business. They helped me, you know, keep focused, but they were also completely open to you know, the ideas that I brought to the table about organization. And that's really where we excelled is we were able to stay lean uh, because of our organization and the people that we had working with us bought into 
the idea that we were collaborating. I think you're right. That is the hallmark of Green Skies, is that collaboration and working efficiently. And I also want to point out to your listeners that we didn't start investing in things like the HANA until we did it with cash. We didn't you know, borrow money for anything. We were in the black the entire way. And that's an important distinction because I see a lot of startups now as an investor in, in multiple businesses and a guy who is fortunate to see a lot of deals come across my desk. I see a lot of people making investments into the technology too early. Mm-hmm. The first thing you need is an astrochemicals PPA. You, know, you need a deal and then <laughs> yeah. you build a business to service that deal. And you, you need a, the product is an idea until you start selling them. And then it becomes cash and then you can start investing in organizational. But for starters, it's just elbow grease. And I think uh, a lot of people get that wrong. Yeah, I think that's sage advice. Mike, I know you're a listener, so you're familiar with the hot or hype segment of the show. Let's jump into some specific topics and you can give us your 30 to 60 second answer on whether or not you think they're hot, hype or why. We'll start with DG, Distributed Generation Energy Storage. Um, I think that there are markets where that is hot and there are other markets where it is not hot. And the key metric for determining if something's hot or not, in my mind, is its reliance on subsidies. And if something is completely reliant on subsidies, it can't be hot Mm. because that means it is by its nature unsustainable or susceptible to change in policy. So in markets in the United States, uh, and again, I'm uh, not quite as polished on those as I once was having sold green skies, but I understand that batteries are a tricky art form. But I'm seeing in certain emerging markets, batteries be very hot in that Mm. it is not reliant whatsoever on a utility incentive or a policy type of incentive. So it's a mixture depending where you are. Well, we get a lot of folks working in emerging markets. Did you care to highlight some of the emerging markets where you think that battery storage is really going to take hold? Well, I'll say broadly, you know, I think sub-Saharan Africa is ripe for batteries because it already is still reliant on diesel generators, which are in essence a predecessor to the battery, Right. that it makes sense that they would ratchet up to the next scale, which would be batteries. And it may not be lithium ion. There are a, a variety of battery types that are effective in Africa right now, but it's probably eventually lithium ion. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. And there are others too, but if you can think of markets where intermittency is a real problem and where businesses that want to take matters into their own hands might consider it a worthwhile investment to own batteries. Those are the markets where you're going to find success in the early days. Yeah. What comes to mind for me is in particular in the markets that I've specialized in Latin America and the Caribbean, the island states, you got, yeah. a, lot, you lot of, got a lot of companies in particular, as you said, uh, an example uh, that I remember from previ- a couple of previous uh, deals is an ice cream manufacturer in one of the major Caribbean islands, right? Companies who are willing and able and profitable enough to defect from the grid and, and they they want stable power. And in particular, anywhere where diesel generators are currently in common use as grid stability support. So that's a, that's a great point. All right, moving on. How about uh, hot or hype microgrids as a core part of the future of the grid? You know, I mean, I've definitely been listening to some of your recent podcasts here. You guys have done a really nice job. You have done a really nice job of bringing on guests to speak more clearly about what a microgrid is. And it's clearly the consensus that a microgrid has a very loose definition. And I like the one that a microgrid is basically not necessarily detached from the grid. 
Yeah. Uh, microgrid could even be within a single building. It's about isolated network of some sort, but not necessarily completely isolated. If we think about microgrids as like going to a, a village in Africa that is currently unconnected to the rest of the world and building our own wires and batteries and solar infrastructure, I have no idea where that's at. I'd imagine that's going to have all sorts of challenges. And it doesn't seem to me to be where we need to be focusing our efforts right now as an industry. You know, there are still plenty of opportunities that are grid connected where there's not enough generation capacity and, you know, where we should be really focused. So I can't imagine that being hot. But thinking about the integration of batteries and generation in a more modular basis, if we can consider that as a microgrid in and of itself, then it's, it is the ultimate part of what we're doing in Red Hot. You know, I think places like California, who, if I'm not mistaken, Suncast listeners will probably chime in here on Twitter or something, but there is legislation going through the house that essentially will allow a business to sell power to their neighbor. You know, that's kind of what the microgrid and Internet of Things piece of our industry has been waiting for is this open architecture where one peer can sell to another peer excess power instead of selling it back to the utility. And then, then that will eventually form some sort of market dynamic for pricing. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. You didn't need that when everything was centrally generated, but that's just becoming you know, more and more critical when you have distributed generation. So, Mike, what about the nexus of renewables and the electrification of the automobile industry? How do you feel about that? You know, I, I just feel that the electrification of the automobile industry has been such a struggle. Uh, we've looked at this. We've installed a number of car chargers back in the day at Green Skies. We've definitely followed along and we're, we're hopeful that it evolves. I think that Tesla, you know, needs to focus on manufacturing cars and returning profit to shareholders instead of, you know, the craziness. Uh, so our, the leader of the electric car industry, I feel, you know, needs to get more focused on that mission. And until we really have a focused leader, it's just going to take a long time for electric cars to have enough penetration to actually be considered part of the electric grid in the network. Until then, you know, we're just focused on cost down and solar. I hear you. I hear you. Okay. Another uh, potentially hype conversation, and I want to be careful how I phrase this. I'm not talking about cryptocurrency. Hot or hype blockchain as it relates to energy. Sure. So I think a lot of people, I think, over-exaggerate the energy demand caused by blockchain and token creating. You know, once you create the tokens for a blockchain, you know, those machines can unplug and move over to generating the next token. You, know, you stand up that platform and you move on. So I don't view that as like this ultimate energy suck that a lot of people envision as a problem or an Achilles heel of blockchain technology. But as far as developing applications that are specific to renewable energy, there are use cases, you know, remote net metering and blockchain and what you mentioned as you know, one neighbor selling electricity to their other could be facilitated and improved upon with blockchain technology, but it's not necessary right now. Mm. We can do this with centralized collaborative utilities if we can talk them into this being an advantage and making sure that they're still getting paid transmission and distribution fees. I think that's going to come anyways. So you really want to look at blockchain's applications where it's needed. And I'm not convinced that in the near term, we need blockchain technology to do any of the ideas that we have in the distributed generation business. So last but not least, from the guy who ran the company that became the number one ranking US solar company based on his approach to C&I, hot or hype, 
commercial and industrial as the new hot market in the U.S.? So I think that comes down to what's hot for you. In the U.S., like a lot of the best customers have been picked over and you know, the Fortune 50 have all taken a look at this. But there's this whole unrated market that is just waiting to be tapped. Um, I think that is hot and it's going to happen. It's only a matter of time. And on an international basis, we're seeing CNI really become an exciting subsector. But mm-hmm. to put it into perspective, you know, I would imagine that CNI solar in the international markets to evolve into approximately a five to seven million dollar slice of an industry that's 160 billion dollars plus. So it's still small compares in comparison to the broader energy industry. So I don't know if you could describe it as hot on that basis. You know, you've built a winning team, you've exited a successful business, now you're building Energia. Do you recall a moment in time where you really recognized that you had found a winning formula? And can you describe that moment and how you build upon it? Well, sure. Energia first is really an extension of the same ethos and concepts that were born at Green Skies. We've migrated to emerging markets instead of you know, U.S. markets, but we're still focused on CNI solar and distributed generation. So really when we started thinking that we were onto something was when we were winning sizable contracts with uh, juggernaut customers, and we were doing it by old school business style. In other words, we were not raising lots of venture capital or, or investments at the corporate. We were just grinding it out brick by brick. And that was a recipe that really worked well at Green Skies. Mm-hmm. And as I've like learned more about business over the years and studied, you know, the Sun Edison case studies and the other case studies of our industry, it just serves to solidify my belief that all business is the same and it is best done brick by brick with profitability in mind. And instead of raising a lot of money and then exploring these, you know, concepts wildly, which is ideas that are really functional right now in the sort of California frame of mind and even Wall Street to a lesser degree, we've never bought into that. So our old school preference for profit first and grow slow and lean operations is our mantra. And when we started seeing that that was effective against even these, you know, much more funded, well-funded platforms was when it started dawning on me that we we were doing things correctly. Yeah, I love it. The old school business tactics, the blocking and tackling of focusing on profit, growing according to your profit and your signed contracts and running your operations lean enough to be able to pair back without cutting heads is sage business advice. I think a lot of that comes from the perspective of being an owner and the CEO involved in its daily operations. When it's your money, I think that you have a different perspective of things. When it's an investor's money, I think you make different decisions. And that discipline for me really came from the fact that it was my capital and I didn't want to necessarily make that higher or buy that new thing unless I needed to. And that saved us from getting ourselves into trouble. Well, Mike, let's move into the legacy section of the show, right? Let's talk about some of the lessons learned. I obviously, we talked a lot about lessons learned already, but I'm curious to know what are some of the key lessons and takeaways from some of the most important mentors in your life and career? Well, undoubtedly, you know, my father-in-law, Art Senior, is a huge mentor of mine. And it really comes back down to lifestyle and what it is to be an entrepreneur. We all know the incredible amount of work 
and effort and the hours needed to be successful um, and to start a business and to keep it going and growing. And I had two people to look up to in my partnerships. One guy, Art Linares, had a way of being successful that didn't cripple the other aspects of his life. He was able to be a great family member and have multiple businesses going on at once. And he did that by knowing just how much to give and how to also be respectful of his own time and his, and his own situation. And I studied that because I, as an entrepreneur, have a tendency to just go completely overboard and just get so involved with the ideas that sometimes other important things just disappear. And that lifestyle is something that I've really infused into my second go around here at Energia, where it is about a balanced approach. And it turns out, ironically, that you know, enjoying what you're doing and every minute of it and having a balanced approach to business is very lucrative and it creates good, solid business. What you really wind up hacking away is the noisy parts that weren't really profitable to begin with. And you're left with the things that matter most to not only the business, but life in general. And that was a huge lesson from one of my, my favorite mentors, Art Linares, my father-in-law. I love that. And it's so true uh, as an entrepreneur or even as a, you know, as a career person who's trying to figure out their path, you're tempted to have a lot of voices in the room, right? A lot of voices influencing you and that ability to surround yourself with key mentors and to learn to filter the noise is critical. I kind of think of it as well as the, the kind of, I can always tell, well, I believe I can tell when I find a, a focused or you know, intentional entrepreneur by whether they keep good habits. And of course, we'll talk about habits, but two of the things that I think are extremely important for entrepreneurs are that show me as a bellwether that they are going to be successful is their sleep habit and their exercise habit. And I find that entrepreneurs who don't care for either of those two aspects in some form as a core piece of who they are, their business tends to reflect that. And they don't live long. <laughs> yeah, they don't live long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've chatted a lot over the years and certainly recently in recent days. I believe that your ability to focus determines your success. And I find that there are far too many entrepreneurs, myself included in many, in many uh, respects, uh, are distracted. And what an advantage for you early in your career to have a mentor like Art who would help give you that perspective that uh, less is more. Undoubtedly. And it comes back to sort of when life is work. And right now I embrace a combination of life and work. My office is my home. My collaborators are often friends and, and people I've worked with and, and just known in some capacity along life's journey. And We've found a way to really live work without work, you know, dictating our life. And a lot of times I spend all day, you know, at the computer or on the phone doing the, the things that make a work day. And I view that as sort of preparations so that in the evenings, I have a lot of people come to the house and we philosophize, we talk about a number of different topics. A lot of them are work related because a lot of my friends are in the space. But it's, I almost view it as the daytime, if I were a comedian, I'm writing my jokes so that at night when I get together with other thinkers, I can test them out and see which ones are good and which ones need to be scrapped. And that kind of solidifies that relationship between work and life 
that are have become inseparable in the way I do things, at least. I absolutely love that connection. So any listener of Suncast for any period of time would know that James Altucher is probably my favorite podcast. And he recently interviewed Tony Rock, Chris Rock's brother, who many people oh, cool. may not even recognize, but Tony Rock is just as big, if not bigger, a comedian. He just isn't as big a Hollywood persona. God, you just I'm going to go listen to it again. What you just said <laughs> is exactly how Tony Rock said he built his career. He said that every single day, even now, every day he meets with other comedians. That is how he comes up with and refines his material. He also said something I thought was really interesting, that a comedy show, a bit at a comedy show, 15, 20 minutes at a comedy show is practice. It's actually like they don't even care if you uh, laugh. All they care about is your reaction because they're just practicing for when they do get the big time, when they get the HBO special, when they get the one hour special, whatever. So they show up every night at a comedy show to practice the bits that they came up with in their daily conversations with other comedians they met with over coffee. And I think that far too few of us in the energy industry, certainly you and I embrace this, but far too few of us actually embrace this notion that conversation, philosophizing over work is work and it is intentional crafting of our trajectory and you shouldn't diminish that in your life if you aren't going out on a regular basis to grab coffee or lunch with another industry professional and asking questions, learning how their process works, learning how their company approaches problems, then you're doing yourself a disservice. It's kind of like Keith Ferrazzi's book, Never Eat Alone, that Scott Sullivan mentioned back in his episode. It just points to the fact that we have to sharpen one another. And the best way to do that is to meet with your peers and to meet even better with mentors or, or pseudo or virtual mentors and learn from them. So I appreciate you bringing that perspective to the show, Mike. Absolutely. Absolutely. The entrepreneurial process is inherently intellectual and our jokes equivalent is an idea. And you have to go through thousands of bad ideas to find one good one, as everyone knows, but you do that through that intellectual process, that discourse and those sharing of time with other people who are capable of understanding and, and carrying along the conversation. So critical for all entrepreneurs to have you know, that conversational part of their lifestyle. Mike, before we jump into the final segment, I'd really like to know as you survey the course of Peace Corps and being a line chef and growing Green Skies to a successful exit, is there anything that on the surface would look like a derailment? It would look like a, a temporary failure that really at its core was formative and influenced how you grew as a person and as a businessman? Well, sort of along those lines is the nature of project financing. I found that you know I was constantly under extraordinary pressure from our big banking partners. These were huge, sophisticated organizations that had centuries of experience in lending money. And they were looking at my business, which is a relatively new enterprise. And you know, we were tiny compared to them. And they would just beat us up. And we spent so many hours preparing documents and figuring out how to communicate things to them in a banker language. And at times, it felt like they were just picking on me. But those, as I look back, were actually the times that the business really formed itself. And we grew to accommodate those transactions. So sometimes when it feels like you're just failing and getting your ass kicked by a major financier or the investor or a customer even, those are actually the moments that you're building something. Man, and, and as I think now about Energia, you'd never be able to consider the transactions that come your, to your door now had you not been formed through the crucible of those financial engagements to grow green skies. 
A hundred percent. And, you know, a lot of the boxes are already checked. You know, I know, you know, which IE I'm going to use. I know who I'm going to call when I need somebody to review insurance or legal docs. And, you know, I can bring this sort of band of brothers from my past to bear in these new projects. But alongside there, there's always brand new challenges like foreign exchange, brand new challenge for me to overcome. I'm working on that in the international sphere, you know, policies and political insurance and geopolitical economics becomes a much more important feature to project development. So you're never done learning. You know, you can kind of stand upon the lessons that you've learned in the past, but you know, a good entrepreneur is, is using that to get to the next rung on the ladder. And I feel like that's what energy is for me. Very cool. I mentioned a minute ago, and we always have a segment on being an infinite learner. I know from our conversations that you are an, a voracious reader. I'd love to know, one, I'll go back to a tried and true question from the Suncast archives. What's on your nightstand? Meaning, what are you reading now? Two, follow that with what book have you given away the most? Yeah, sure. So the book I've given away the most was Hot, Flat, and Crowded from Thomas Friedman. Uh, Back in the day when we were all trying to explain how we felt about the clean tech revolution, he really did a nice job of laying that out. So for many years, I gave that book away to new employees and people I was working with and people who I thought would find value there. But that's uh, a dated book now for sure, even though many of its philosophies are yet to reach fruition. And there's probably some good business plan ideas still buried in its chapters. Jared Diamond is my favorite author. And I think that I rely on a global perspective in order to derive new business ideas. And when you read a book like Collapse, where he takes the microcosm of failed societies. And, you know, it's up to the reader to determine whether or not some of the behaviors in modern society are reminiscent of the behaviors that led to failure around the world. It reminds me of another anecdote. One of my favorite TED Talks is the creator of a business called Ideas Lab. I'm sure you've heard of them. Oh, gross. And he, yeah, you got it. And he talked about, you know, sort of the different elements of making a successful business versus an unsuccessful business. And he talks about the management team and access to capital and the idea and timing. When he boils it down, he says, the single most influential element of an idea that affects its success is the timing of the idea. Mm. And he gives this great example about how he had a business and was investing in this company that was just like YouTube, but it was a couple of years before YouTube, before broadband had really matured and before its time had come. And the difference is bankruptcy versus a multi-billion dollar exit. So the timing is such a crucial element to um, the success or lack thereof of an idea. And as I have you know, kids now, I ask myself, you know, I can teach my daughter and, and my son about business and about work effort and about how to you know, meet people and understand people. But how do you teach a kid about timing. And the only thing I could think of is to have a global perspective and to really sense the rhythm of the way things are working is the best way. So I try to read things that give me a global perspective, things like Jared Diamond's books and, and others and news and current events, because they give me a sense for the rhythm of the world. And it's through that that I can identify weaknesses in the code and where something needs to be plugged in in order for this to make more sense. And that's really the birthplace of new ideas. If 
if you ask me. Man, that you've given me so much to think about here. And I have not read Collapse, so I'm adding that now to my list. That is fantastic. Well, as I always ask, what one habit or consistent practice most influences your persona, your being? Is there something that you do that you would say you can attribute to your success? Well, in this one, I think we've already covered to some degree, but it's about my just need to socialize and to communicate ideas with other people and about constantly getting together physically in the same place as other people over a beer or a glass of wine or a cup of coffee or dinner and just trading ideas. And that's really the heart of what I do as a business person is having those conversations and teasing out the good ones and separating you know, the bad ones out. Well, we certainly see eye to eye on that point. In that regard, I know a lot of folks would love to be able to reach out to you. And consequently, I know that through Energia, you savor the opportunity to interact with folks, not just in North America, but in particular in emerging economies. How could folks best reach Mike Silvestrini? Well, Mike at Energia, E-N-E-R-G-E-A dot com is my email address. And uh, I'd love to hear from you folks and hear about what you're seeing and doing in the marketplace. And perhaps we can collaborate on something. I'd love to know, is there something that the Suncast audience can do in particular that would help your mission or that you would ask of the Suncast audience? You've got a platform, use it. Sure. I mean, what we're really looking for at Energia are the C&I solar developers in emerging economies that need a little bit of mentorship and maybe some flexible capital in order to bring their projects to fruition. That's where we add a lot of value in those green skies experiences and with the capital we've raised and have put together ourselves. So we want to partner with you and make these projects work. And the more challenging, the more interested we are, it makes it harder for others to do what we do when we take on some of the more difficult challenges like uh, Africa and Latin American deals. If you're listening here and you're down there and you feel like you continually run into a wall and you'd love a big brother or mentor, I can recommend no one more highly than Mike and his team. I'm grateful that you've been on the show today. I'll ask you our final question before we sign off. If you look in your crystal ball, what one thing do you see happening that perhaps nobody else is tracking? I think it is the rise of CNI distributed renewables in these emerging markets because it's such a spec on the industrial meter, but it is bound to matter as these countries start to catch up with the uh, Western markets that have been fortunate enough to subsidize and kind of get an early jump on this evolution. They're right there in the waiting and they're coming next. Well, that is yet again something that we see eye to eye on. And as we do see the rise of CNI and distributed generation and emerging markets, we will no doubt continue to cover it here on Suncast. Mike Silvestrini, my friend, thank you so much for your presence and energy on Suncast today. Thank you, Nico. Much appreciated. I hope that you'll take some time this week to really think about how you can maximize your own productivity and impact while still enjoying the only day you've been given today. And I am grateful that you've chosen to spend some of this day with me. Tune in again on this and every Thursday for another long-form interview with cleantech and solar industry leaders designed to help you learn and grow from the best minds I can find. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. 
I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.